It's good to see you here this morning. We're going to be starting a, a mini-series this morning. Um, for this week and next week, we are going to be talking about miracles. Now, miracles is a term that we tend to throw around rather loosely these days. Whenever something wonderful happens, you know, when something really good or wonderful, like when an unlikely underdog team that has never won a Super Bowl before uh, with a backup quarterback leading them is able to defeat the five-time Super Bowl champion Tom Brady and the Patriots in, Patriots in Super Bowl 52. Wonderful thing, right? And we're all saying, like, you know, that's a miracle, right? And, uh, or or uh, um, maybe think back, way back, you know, 1980 Winter Olympics. And, you know, in Lake Placid, New York, when in the medal round, the U.S. hockey team, who is, you know, consists entirely of amateur players, beat the Soviet Union, the Soviet team, who had won five gold medals in the previous six years, and then the USA team went on to win the gold medal in hockey, and their defeat of the Soviet team in those Olympics is known as what? The miracle on ice, right? You heard that before? The miracle on ice. We talk about miracles. We use the term whenever something good happens, you know, maybe something that's, that's good and that was totally unexpected, extremely unlikely to happen. Um, but when we look at the Bible, the Bible uses the word miracle quite differently. And there's actually several different words that, are, that we uh, use as uh, uh, the word, translated the word miracle. The Bible refers to miracles as, as wonders, as signs, as mighty acts, as powers. I'm getting a little bit of ring up here. Um, the Bible speaks of, uh, 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 you know, uses those different words to talk about miracles. And it speaks of three distinct emphasis on miracles. You know, they are, you know, miracles are distinctive or wonderful, all right? Uh, they are mighty, they're powerful, and they are also, they're, they're meaningful, they are significant, they were there for a purpose. And that puts those in a league totally altogether different than what we so often speak of as miracles today. You know, I didn't know how I was going to pay this bill, this money came in, just in time, it's a miracle. You know, we're talking about something a little deeper than that. I want to look at a, a couple of verses just to start us off. First, in Psalm 77, 14, it says, You are the God of miracles and wonders. You still demonstrate your awesome power. All throughout the Bible, we see miracles from Genesis on through to Revelation. And we read of miracle after miracle after miracle because God is, not was, God is the God of miracles. And the psalmist said, you still demonstrate your awesome power. In other words, you were a God of miracles in days past, and you are still a God of miracles today. And the same is true today in the 21st century. God is still a God of miracles. It's not all past history, it's current events. God has never stopped moving in power. He has never stopped moving in miracles. The book of Job says in, in chapter 5, verse 9, he performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted, miracles that cannot be counted. You might say, well, I've never seen one. Some have, some hasn't. 
haven't. But just because we haven't seen one doesn't mean that they don't happen, and happen rather frequently. See, here's the thing. God loves to break into our lives. He loves to break into our lives. When Jesus announced the arrival of the kingdom, he said the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of God is here, that meant that God's rule has come, and he said, it's basically him saying, okay, God's rule has come, and I'm taking over. I am taking over. When God works a miracle, he's taking charge. Whether it's taking charge over, nat- over nature, like in the, the, the parting of the, uh, parting of the uh, Red Sea, or in Jesus walking on water, or taking charge of disease, as when he touched the leper and he, uh, the leper became clean, was healed, or taking charge over demons when he orders them out of a person. It's the kingdom rule and reign taking over. Now, we're going to look at a miracle today, and the one that we're going to look at, we're going to see, we're going to see Jesus taking charge over death itself when his good friend Lazarus died. I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, are, are familiar with the story, but we're going to look at it today and see what God is saying to you and to me, to us today. Let's start off in John chapter 11, starting at the beginning. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. If you want to read about that, you can read about that in the next chapter, in John chapter 12. And, you know, I have no doubt in my mind that I, I believe that the reason we have that story in, in John 12 with Jesus pouring, I mean, I mean, with Mary pouring the oil, you know, expensive oil on, on Jesus' feet and wiping with her hair is because that was prompted by gratitude to a great degree or largely from what Jesus did for her here concerning her brother Lazarus. I believe what we're going to see Jesus did in John 11 is going to be what's behind Mary going all out extravagant in thanksgiving and worship in chapter 12. So just a side note there. It says her brother Lazarus was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. But when Jesus heard about it, He said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. Jesus never said Lazarus was not going to die. He said that it would not end in death. In other words, death was not going to have the final word here. So this was a serious deal. This was not, you know, uh, uh, the sniffles or, or head cold. This wasn't just, you know... You know, I had a killer workout yesterday, and my muscles are sore. I mean, it was a new workout, and it's like, you know, I try to go up the stairs, and it's like, oh, I try to get up from a chair, and, you know, but that's minor compared to this. You know, this was a serious thing. Lazarus was at death's door. So the, so the sisters went, you know, sent word to Jesus that Lazarus was very sick, and they expected that Jesus would come right away, maybe lay hands on him or speak to the sickness, and it would be gone, and Lazarus would be fine. He would be healed. You know, they had seen Jesus heal many people. They had seen him perform amazing miracles. They knew what he could do, and they had, so they had no doubt that he could do this if they could just get word to him in time. Then Jesus would come and lay hands on Lazarus, and all would be well. Only one problem. It's not what happened, is it? It's not what happened. Sometimes 
what we're expecting to happen doesn't work out the way that we think it should or it will, right? And when that happens, if we're not careful, we fall into the death trap. This is what happens. This is how it happens. It begins when things don't happen the way we want or the way we think they should go, the way we expect them to happen. Verses 5 and 6. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. I mean, there's no doubt about how much he loved this family. These are, these are some of his closest friends. There's no doubt about how much he loved this family. So you expect him to hear, you know, oh man, Lazarus is really sick. You would expect him to rush off and get Lazarus, get to Lazarus as quickly as possible, right? Wrong. It's not what happened. Instead, Jesus said, we're, we're going to hang out here for a couple more days. And he stayed. Why? Why? I'll tell you why. Fact is, we don't know why. We don't know all of the reasons why Jesus does things the way that he does. See, he doesn't have to answer to us. Sometimes we act like he does. God, why aren't you doing this? You know how much glory this could bring to your name. You know how much this is needed. Why aren't you doing this? And he waits. And we don't know why. We don't understand it. You know, we have our thoughts, we have our opinions, we have our ideas, but often we don't understand how God works. We don't. We don't understand how he works. Verses 11 and 13 Two days after receiving the news, he says, okay, guys, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now we'll go and wake him up. And the disciples said, well, Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll get up, you know, uh, he'll, he'll soon get better. If he's just asleep, he'll wake up soon. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. And he made that clear to them. I can imagine what, you know, the confusion that was going through the minds of his disciples about now. First, Jesus gets the news and he decides to wait two days. Then he says, okay now guys, Lazarus is dead, so let's go see him. It's like, what? It's too late. Have you ever thought, you know, well, Jesus, you know, you, you had your chance. You could have really done something great here, but no, you blew it. You waited too long. It's too late now. It would have been such a great testimony, but it's too late now. You missed your chance. I thought you knew what you were doing. You ever think like that? <coughs> you ever say that to Jesus or even think it? You blew your chance. The problem is, when we don't understand the way God works, then we get consumed with doubt. Okay? When we don't understand, doubt comes in. It creeps in, and then it begins to grow, because <clears throat> the enemy whispers a, 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 to us. Um, you know, first Jesus decides to, to, to wait two days, and, and, and you know, then it's, it's like, okay, now we're, that he's dead, we're going. 
the doubt comes in. I want you to listen to Thomas's remark for a minute, and I want to think about this for a second. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go to and die with Jesus. Let's go and die with him. The disciples knew that it was dangerous for them to go to Bethany because there were those looking out to kill Jesus. So he says, okay, let's go and die with Jesus. On the one hand, it shows a tremendous loyalty, right? On the one hand, it shows, you know, just, just like, yeah, you know, this just the valor. We're going to, you know, let's, let's go die with him. But on, I want to ask you something. Why is he assuming that they're going to die? Why is he just assuming that they're going to die? Why doesn't he say, okay, guys, this is the deal. We're going to go with him, and we're going to make sure he stays safe. We can keep our eyes open for those that want to kill us or kill him. We'll keep our eyes open, you know, our eyes peeled, and we'll be on the lookout for those, for his enemies, and, and we'll get in, take care of whatever Jesus wants to do there, and then get out quickly. Why does he just assume the worst? Okay, let's go. Let's die with him. Better yet, why do we often assume the worst is going to happen? Don't we? So often we think we look at the worst case scenario. Why do we doubt that God knows what he's doing? Why do we doubt his ability to act? Or better yet, why do we doubt his willingness to act? You know, a lot of us would say, Oh, yeah, I know that God can do this. I know that God can bring this healing. I know that he can, you know, take care of this, you know, desperate need. I know that he can do all things. So I know that he can do this. But then when we turn it around, look at us, we say, but I just don't think he's going to do it. I don't think he's going to do it for me. And we start to doubt him. Why do we doubt him? Because we have such a hard time realizing the intensity and the depth of God's tremendous love for each one of us and that he really does have our best interest at heart. That he really does have our best interest. Not, not, not just when we, you know, it's like, well, I guess I better do this for Dave. You know? He's been pestering me, so I get... No, he really does have my best interest at heart. I just don't understand how he's working it out sometimes. But I trust that he knows. Why do we doubt just because we don't understand what's going on? Yet we do. And then, after doubt comes in, we give up on God. Time goes by and we just give up on God. And that's what Mary did. You know Mary, the one that we read about in the story that, that you know, Martha was busy getting all the, the arrangements done for lunch and busy, you know, you know slicing the bologna and, and, you know, and, and, and getting the fresh bread out of the oven and, and everything for lunch, making all the arrangements, and Mary's just sitting at Jesus' feet. Isn't that wonderful? We always praise Mary and, and, and think, oh, Martha, you should have known better, right? Right? Well, look at this. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, in verse 17 and 20, when Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in the grave for four days. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. 
She got up from the couch, went out to meet him. But Mary, what'd she do? Stayed in the house. See, Mary had had hope when they sent for Jesus. Mary had had hope. She knew what Jesus could do. And she anxiously waited. But then her brother died. And with each passing day, she sinks further and further down. So when Jesus arrived, she didn't even go out to see him. Why bother? It's too late. He could have done something, but he didn't. So, you know, Lazarus died four days ago. It's, it's, it's too late. So she just, she just stayed in the house. Why didn't he come sooner? He could have prevented her brother's death. And she just sank farther and farther down. I imagine it was like, well, maybe he just doesn't really care. You ever thought that? God didn't do what I want him to do. Didn't answer the way I wanted him to answer. So I guess he just doesn't care. You know, I've seen this happen so many times, the death trap. Things don't go the way we expect or hope they will. Doubt comes in, confusion comes in. Instead of pressing in to Jesus, instead of going to him and pressing in, even when we don't understand it, we allow our feelings of disappointment to take over. We stop going to church. We, you know, our, our, our Bible starts to collect dust. In essence, we give up on God. It's too late. Not even he can do anything now. Right? Sound familiar? I've seen it happen over and over. <clears throat> you know, we may not say that we don't believe anymore, but we've stopped talking to him, stopped gathering with his people, stopped expecting that he would really have any kind of involvement in our lives. We stop looking for his hand at work. And basically, we dry up. We don't have any kind of spiritual life anymore, all because we let our feelings and uh, 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 of disappointment and confusion take over and determine our actions. On the other hand, we have Martha, wonderful Martha. Martha experienced the same confusion, the same disappointment as her sister Mary experienced, but here's the key. She responded differently. In spite of her disappointment, in spite of the fact that she didn't understand and that she was confused, she got up and she went to Jesus. When she heard that he was there, that he had arrived, she got up and she went to Jesus. And when she did, she soon discovered that even death does not have the final word Jesus does. Remember, Jesus said this sickness will not end in death. Not that he wouldn't die, but it wouldn't end in death. Death is never final. <laughs> Let me ask you something. What is it in your life that is either dead or dying? What is it? Is there something in your life that where you've, you've lost hope? Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's a relationship that's gone sour and you don't understand why or how, but you just wake up one day and you realize you've lost all hope. Things didn't work out the way that you thought they would. And now it feels like that relationship or that career dream or, or, or you know, hopes of financial stability or whatever it was, you've just sunk so far down, whatever it is, that it's just died. <clears throat> if that's where you are, I want you to pay attention to what Jesus said to Martha. 
Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? Jesus told her, death is not final. It's not the end. There is life beyond death. And Jesus has the last word. See, he's setting her up for one of the greatest miracles of, of all time where he demonstrates his power even over death itself. Jesus worked, you know, he, he, he worked miracles then, and he does the same thing today. But we've got to open our eyes to them. All throughout the history of the church, in every period of history, there are records of documented miracles from the time of the apostles until today. To deny that is to ignore and deny history. There are documented cases of miracles. He's still in the miracle working business. And whatever you need may have, you may feel like it has died. But he's still the same Jesus that brought Lazarus out of the grave. So what do you do if you need a miracle in your life? Where do you start? I'm going to give you three things this morning. One, it's essential. Settle in your heart who Jesus is. Settle it in your heart. Who is Jesus? And I don't mean just who he is in a historical context, but who is he to you? Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. She knew what he could do. My brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. What a statement. Even now I know. There's the, there's the reality of real disappointment. There's confusion. And yet at the same time, there is a persistent faith because her hope was not in the outcome her hope was in the it was not in her being able to understand her hope was in the one who could bring the outcome it's like lord i know you could have saved my brother i don't understand of all of this but yet even now i know god's going to answer your prayer i don't get it all i don't understand it but i know who you are she still had faith and jesus told her i'm the resurrection and the life Anyone who, who, who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? He's speaking directly to her. He says, do you believe this? And that's the question for the ages, for each one of us. What do we believe about Jesus? Do you believe that he is who he said he is? You know, one time with the, with, with the uh, 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 apostles, Jesus asked the disciples, you know, hey, who are people saying I am? Oh, and, oh some say this, and some say Elijah, and some say this, and, and that. And then, and then you know, he, he, he narrows it down. He, he asks them directly, but who do you say that I am? Because he really wasn't interested in what everybody else thought of him, who everybody else said he was. He says, who do you say that I am? Nobody else can answer that question for you. I'm the only one that can answer it for me. You're the only one that can answer it for you. And Martha's response, in response to Jesus' question, said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. 
She didn't say, oh, I understand it all now. I see how it all works out. I understand that. No, she's just saying, I don't know what's going on here. I don't understand this, but this I do know. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God who comes into the world. Martha had settled the issue in her heart. The second thing we need to do is to stop analyzing everything. Right? We like to do that, don't we? We like to analyze everything. You know, you want to do something over here, and it's like, well, that won't work because of this, this, and this, and this. We analyze everything. We, we try to figure everything out, and usually once we start doing that, we analyze ourselves right out of any faith that we may have had. Well, it hasn't happened in the past, and I've gone and asked, you know, a hundred times before, and nothing's happened, so it's not going to happen now, and, and these are the reasons, uh, you know, and we start analyzing everything. See, typically, instead of figuring out how something can happen, we figure out all the ways something can't happen. And here's the thing. We're not going to have faith if we're listening to our mind and our feelings all the time. Because our mind and our feelings will talk us right out of faith. They lie to us. And they'll talk us right out. I'm not saying we should never use our mind. God gave us a mind, and He expects us to use it. He gave it to us for a reason. But there's also the reality that we cannot figure out God. He is so beyond us. You know, all the, the, the synonyms and, and, and words that David was reading earlier, you know, tremendous. It's like he is so far beyond us. Huge. We can't figure him out. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts higher than our thoughts. Look at verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was, a, it was a, a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. Now, here comes the analyzing. Here comes all the analyzing. He said, take away the stone. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been in there four days in that hot, humid climate. He's been in there four days. Now, according to Jewish thought of the day, the spirit would hover, hover around the body for a few days, then about the fourth day, it would depart because decay would set in. So by all accounts, it's too late, right? By all accounts, it's too late. But reality is, sometimes God is up to something that we don't fully understand. And we've got to stop analyzing everything and trust God and give Him the space to do what He wants the way He wants. So first, we settle the issue in our heart of who Jesus is. We settle that in our heart. And then we stop analyzing everything and, and trying to figure out the, uh, you know, everything out. And then the third thing that we do is we've got to start living again. We start living again. See, here's the deal. God wants life for you. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. See, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And when he does that, it's time for us to rise up and say, no more. No more. I'm not going to listen to you anymore. I'm not going to pay attention to you anymore. 
Jesus came to give me life, and I am going to live that life for the fullest. It's time to look, uh, look to Jesus in faith and say a big yes to all that he tells us, to all that he offers us. Now, here's the miracle. Jesus is standing at the entrance of the tomb. This huge stone is, you know, they get it rolled away. And then once it's rolled away, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I would have loved to have been there. I mean, when Jesus said, Lazarus, come out, I would have probably been like looking around, you know, like, what's everybody else think about this, you know? And then all of a sudden he comes out. It says, the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen, his cloth around, and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. It's time to take off the grave, grave clothes and once again walk in life. What are the grave clothes that we need to take off? Any number of things we could list. I've got a few of them here. Things like fear, doubt, unbelief, a refusal to trust, negativity, expecting the worst, always looking for and expecting the worst, addictions, apathy, being easily offended. Those are the things that keep us wrapped up in the clothes of death. Some of us need to take those things off and start walking in life, walking in things like faith, things like trust, like looking for and expecting the best, things like total commitment, total commitment to Jesus, not just sticking our toes in the water, but diving in head first, refusing to take offense by being quick to forgive. Those are the things that cultivate life. If you feel like something has died in you, start walking in those things and watch life return. When Jesus called out to Lazarus, Lazarus, we never think about it this way, but he had a choice. He could stay in the tomb and be defined by death. Or he could come out of the tomb and be defined by life. And you and I have the same choice. If you want to choose life and let life define you, then take this stand of faith. Instead of believing what I see, I choose to believe what Jesus said. Whether I understand it or not. Instead of choosing, or instead of believing what I see, I choose to believe what Jesus said, even when it contradicts everything else in the natural. There's some blank lines at the end of your outline there. I believe that God's been speaking to some of some of us very clearly this morning about choosing to walk in life and laying down the clothes of death.
maybe some specific areas have come to mind. If you're ready to choose to walk in life, then take a minute and just write down that area. I'm going to choose to walk in life in this area. I'm going to choose to lay down and take off the grave clothes, the clothes of death. And I'm going to choose to walk in life. doesn't mean you've got it all figured out. I've been doing this for how many years? Since 78. And I still don't have it figured out. But I know the one that does. And that's who I'm following. Have the worship team come on up.